Hi, this is Dave Kale. This is part two of our lesson on living deeper, living deeper. Here's how. The, the number one mantra is this, stay balanced, stay balanced. I want to introduce a, an additional diagram at this point. Notice the sailboat. Now, a sailboat has sails that catch the wind and provide the power to move the boat forward. But if a sailboat were only equipped with sails, it would be impossible to steer. It would be blown aimlessly across the water, constantly responding to the shifting direction and velocity of the wind. In order to be manageable, a sailboat needs, deep beneath the bottom of its hull, a keel. Now, a keel is the heavy appendage that extends deep into the water and holds the sailboat down. Some of you may remember the year the United States lost the America's Cup for the first time in over 100 years. The culprit was a notorious winged keel on the Australian boat. It was the keel, not the sails, that made the difference. Now, a sailboat with a keel and no sails will sit motionless in the water. On the other hand, a sailboat with sails and no keel will blow whichever way the wind pushes it. It's the dynamic tension created by these two opposing forces, the force that powers it in response to the wind and the force that holds it back. It's the dynamic tension between the sail and the keel that provides the sailboat the ability to be directed no matter what the course and character of the winds, the secret to its power lies in the balance between these two opposing forces. A perfectly balanced sailboat where the two opposing forces precisely complement each other is a sailboat operating at its peak. Now, so it is in the life of a salesperson. In order to make the most effective use of time, a salesperson has to stay in balance, perfectly positioned in the dynamic tension between opposing life forces. The sales in the life of a salesperson are those things that speed you up, that accelerate your growth and your success, that energize you and empower you. And the keels are those things that hold you down and fasten you to ideas and people that limit your behavior and reduce your choices. If you're going to be an effective time manager, you need to balance the driving forces with the limiting forces in your life. You need to live within the zone of dynamic tension between these two pressures so that you can be your most effective all the time. Now think about it. If you're not as effective as you could be, you're wasting a good deal of your time. Even one sales call made when you're not at your best could be a waste of time. Remember that smart time management has far more to do with effectiveness than efficiency. So if you're in balance, you're working at your highest level of effectiveness. Staying in balance keeps you at your best day in and day out, week in and week out, monthly, yearly, and for the long term. A sailboat coursing along in the zone 
between the two forces is one that is operating as close to perfect as possible. It's, you know, it's an experience of beauty. It's a thrill that requires almost no effort on the part of the sail, sailor. So, too, is a salesperson sailing ahead at the intersection of opposing forces. It's an effortless zone. Living in balance is the ultimate effectiveness strategy. It allows to be, you to be at your peak most of the time, and that means you're operating at maximum effectiveness. Okay, so let's, let's drill a little deeper now. Life sales for the salesperson. What are some of the sales that you need to build into your life and then to continually trim and adjust? I'm going to talk about three of them. Life sales. An acceptance of personal responsibility. That's one. Number two, a propensity to take risks. Number three, an attitude of openness. Let's, let's unpack each of these. An acceptance of personal responsibility. It is amazing how liberating a real sense of personal responsibility can be. It's also amazing how few people really experience it. You know, it's far more popular to be a victim. We have all shaken our heads sadly over a newspaper story about someone who commits some act of irresponsibility and then successfully sues someone else for millions of dollars. In our litigious world, being a victim often pays, and that's an unfortunate consequence of an unhealthy belief. As long as we view ourselves as victims, we're unable to change our circumstances and achieve better results. It's not our fault that we're doing better. We tell ourselves, someone else caused it. And because it's someone else's doing, the power to fix it, make it better, is with someone else. So we're powerless. Well, while few people admit it or even realize it consciously, this victim attitude is very common. It's embraced, it's embraced to some degree by most of us. This is especially true of salespeople. could always do better if only something were different. You know, something that someone else controls. If only we had lower prices. If only our quality was better. If only the boss was more understanding. If only customer service was more responsive. You know, etc., etc. You know the litany because you've chanted it. My wife is a crisis counselor. One of the biggest eye-openers for her occurred when she realized she was counseling the same people over and over again. Now, you would think, as she did, that a crisis would be a relatively isolated event. Not so. Many of her, her clients find themselves lurching from one crisis to another. Why? Because they don't make the changes in their behavior and character which got them into the crisis in the first place. At at some level, they see themselves as victims, not personally responsible for their own character, their own behavior, and the consequences that behavior brings. You know, a few years ago, we visited the country of Albania just after the communist government fell. We stayed in a government villa close to the main square in the capital city of Tirana. In the morning, our driver would show up and we'd go off uh, for the day's events. Now, we'd pass a square right in, in the middle of Tirana, and we would see thousands of people milling around. They're just milling around. In the evening, on our way back to the villa, we'd repeat the experience, see the same people. And after a couple of days, we noticed that it was the same people. They were there in the morning and in the afternoon, day after day. When we asked the driver what they were doing, he said, quote, nothing. They're just waiting around for someone to tell them what to do. Now, a generation of repressive, dictatorial government had robbed the population of the ability to think for themselves. 
to assume personal responsibility for their own situation. I had a I had a personal experience brought this lesson home to me in a way I will never forget. You know, I'd be, I had been the number one salesperson in the nation for a company, my first full-time professional sales job. I had it made, you know, adequate salary, good benefits, company car, bonus, and the respect of my employer and my colleagues. But the opportunities were limited. I was young and ambitious, and I decided to move on to a job that was 180 degrees different from that. I took a position selling surgical staplers to hospitals. Now, it was a huge leap from the secure job I had uh, to one that paid straight commission, required you to buy your own samples and literature from the company, and provided only six months of a draw to begin. But I was cocky, and I was filled with the success of my previous job, and, and I was sure I could make this work. I wasn't hasty. You know, I looked at the amount of existing business in the territory I was slated to get, and I determined that if I could double the business within six months, that's where my head was at, I'd be earning close to what I was accustomed to. And then, as I increased the business, my income and lifestyle would illustrate the difference. It all sounded good. I left my old job, and I arrived in New York City for six weeks of intensive training for the new one. And during the time I was there, my district manager moved on and was replaced. When I arrived home after the training, the new manager was anxious to meet with me. In our first meeting, before I had a chance to begin working, he informed me that he had revised the sales territories. The territory that I thought I was going to get, the one for which I was hired, was not the one I was going to get. Instead, I was going to get a territory that was just a fraction of that. Now, the new territory only contained about one-third of the existing business of the previous one. And that change meant that my plans for making a living were shot. It now looked like an impossible job. So, I, you know, I was upset and angry. How, how could they do that to me? I had five kids to support. I, I immediately began to look for another job, determined to quickly leave that unethical, uncaring company. And, you know, things got worse. As I, as I interviewed with several companies, I discovered they saw me as the problem. Instead of understanding what the company had done to me, they thought I was an opportunist who was looking for an easy way out. And it became clear to me that no one else was going to hire me. So, you know, I grew more and more angry and bitter. In addition, I, I was having very little success uh, selling the staplers. And after six months, my uh, temporary draw came to an end. I owed the company $10,000, was making almost nothing, and had no prospects for another job. And I was squeezed between the proverbial rock and the hard place. You know, I was a victim of a dirty deal. And then, you know, out of the blue, one day, I had a revelation. And the revelation was this. It was me. The problem was me. Yeah, you know, the company had treated me poorly. Yes, they had been unethical and uncaring. Yes, they had. But the product was still exciting. The opportunity was still great. And the real problem was my attitude. My bitterness and anger were getting in the way of everything. I was responsible for my own behavior, my own thoughts, my own attitude. And when I realized that it was me, I felt, honestly, like a thousand pounds had been lifted from my shoulders. See, if the problem was me, then I could do something. I could change. If the problem was somebody else, then I was a victim. 
and I was powerless to do anything about it. You know, that was a exhilarating realization. So, you know, I said, okay, I can change myself. And I began to work on my attitude. Remember for the last lesson, attitude. So I began to take control of my thoughts. I, I looked up uh, Bible verses that were very inspiring. Things like, quote, if God is for you, who can be against you? You know, those kinds of things. I wrote them down on index cards. And then as I rode into my territory every morning, I, I drove along I-96 from the uh, suburbs into the city of Detroit. I held them in my hand on the steering wheel and read them over and over to myself. You know, I'd read one, flip it over, read the next one, flip it over, and so on. And slowly, slowly I began to do away with my bitter attitude, and I replaced it with an attitude of hope and expectation. My results began to change, you know. Things began to go to go better. Six months later, I'd paid off the debt to the company, and I was making more money than I thought was possible. The job became more fun, more financially rewarding, and more fulfilling than anything I ever expected. The changing point occurred when I realized it was me, not them, who was at fault, and it was my personal responsibility to change. The acceptance of personal responsibility is a sale, powering energy and success for each of us. That's number one. Number two on my list of sales in the life of a salesperson is this, quote, a propensity to take risks. A propensity to take risks. Now, don't get the wrong idea. We're not talking about skydiving here. Nor are we talking about sinking your life savings in that new startup.com that your neighbor told you about. I don't mean taking risks that might endeavor, endanger your health, or your safety, your long-term security. Instead, I am talking about taking risks that force you to move out of your comfort zones on the job. Risks that will stimulate you to stretch yourself, to become more competent, to gain skills you may not currently have, to expand your abilities and maybe help you become more effective and more efficient. When I began my business, my focus was 100% uh, was on consulting. I never had given a seminar in my life. But I read the books on how you build a consulting practice and all the experts recommended giving seminars as a way to build a consulting practice. So I said, okay, I can do that. I developed a program. The very first seminar that I created was called How to Find, Interview, Select, and Hire a Good Salesperson. How to Find, Interview, Select, and Hire a Good Salesperson. And I approached the local business college with a proposal to jointly present it. They agreed. And a few months later, I presented my first seminar. And it was a huge risk, you know, something I'd never done before. Caused me to stretch myself, to learn a new set of skills. But the seminar was successful, and that led to another and to more. And within a couple of years, I had realized that speaking and training would be major parts of my practice. And today, honestly, my speaking and training income for decades has exceeded my uh, consulting income by, by a huge amount. If, if I had not taken that first risk, I would never have built a speaking practice and traveled all over the world presenting. Not only has my income expanded, but my life has broadened and I've gained new skills. That's the kind of risk I'm talking about. If you can build a propensity to take risks and build that into your job, you'll grow faster and further than if you remain safely inside of your comfort zones. You know, you take risks in a lot of ways. When you call on a different type of customer, for example, you take a risk. 
what you know if you're calling the chief financial officer uh, officer of a business instead of just the production supervisor for example you stepped out of your control your, your comfort zone and you've taken a risk when you choose to implement a new strategy or tactic like maybe rearranging your territory to invest more time in your a accounts you take a risk when you choose to try a new way to make a presentation or to build a relationship or to handle objections or anything anything new and different you're taking a risk now some of those risks will turn out well and others won't regardless you will become more competent more confident and more effective and that's what good time management is all about that's number two a propensity to take risk number three here's the third of a short list of sales in the life of a salesperson number three an attitude of openness an attitude of openness now you don't learn anything from people who totally agree with you you only solidify and harden your beliefs it's for this reason that every cult and manipulative organization or person seeks first to exclude their followers from communicating with people who think differently let me repeat that it's an observation that I have made it's for this reason that every cult or manipulative organization or person seeks first to exclude their followers from communicating with people who think differently I once worked with an extremely manipulative minister who sought to control the loyalty of his followers by influencing them to not talk with people who thought differently. And he did that by planting seeds of doubt and distrust. Be careful about talking to that person. He'll spread rumors about you. Or so-and-so is having trouble in their marriage, so don't talk with her because you're allowed to push her off the deep end. You know, all of these cleverly planted seeds of doubt serve to prevent communication that could have caused people to learn and change their thinking. When I was a child growing up, the religious institution in which my parents raised us taught us that it was sinful to visit a church of another type. We were taught to be afraid to do so, take even one step inside and we would somehow be corrupted. That's what we were taught anyway. And I suspect that the real reason was to discourage us from other ideas. We might be challenged to question some of the beliefs we were being taught if we exposed ourselves to different ideas. Much of the world holds, holds to this approach. You know, we've visited in Morocco, for example, where conversion from Islam to Christianity is treason, punishable by death. I understand that is almost universally true in the Islamic nations. Could it be that the Mullahs are afraid of what questioning their beliefs might lead to? Whether it's a manipulative individual or a, or a fearful institution, the basic instinct is to cut off people from other ideas in any way they can. When you do so, you cause them to harden their beliefs and prevent them from questioning and growing. The opposite tactic, then, becomes a means of enhancing your growth. If you want to grow and improve and become more successful, then you need to expose yourself to people and practices and ideas that are different from your own. You need to nurture an attitude of openness. Now, there's three sales. If you can add those sales to your life, you know, intentionally and willfully, you'll watch yourself gain speed and power. Then, I want you to put them in juxtaposition with the keels that slow you down. So you're operating in a balance. Now, here's three keels. And again, a sail gives you power and growth and speed. A keel holds you back. And you need to have both 
in order, in balance, in order to be operating at your most effective. So life keels, keels in the life of a salesperson are those things that give you substance, that hold you back and tie you down. Now, in order to stay on course, in order to be effective, use time wisely and stay afloat in all kinds of conditions, salespeople need to be to build keels as well as sales into their lives. They need those things which provide them depth as well as energy. They need direction as well as power. The three keels uh, I'm going to mention today are these three. Number one, an examined spirituality. Number two, a chosen character. And number three, a set of higher ethics. Let's look at each of these. We're going to unpack each just like we did with the sales. So the first of my keels are, number one, an examined spirituality. And you're thinking... What is a section on spirituality doing in a lesson about time management for salespeople? Good question. I believe it's the starting point for a transformation to greater success in your life and, and your job. It's at the very heart of who you are. Remember remember the conversation in the last uh, uh, lesson about uh, w- worldview? So that's, it's, it's impinging on the spiritual at that depth. Spiritual beliefs are so deep inside us that they have the power to shape and direct our thoughts, our mindsets, our attitudes, and, of course, our actions. See, they're at the core. It affects everything above from the, from the, the lesson to the diagram in the last lesson. When you, change, when you make changes in your spiritual beliefs, those beliefs shape everything that you do. Your spiritual beliefs shape your worldview, and your worldview determines how you see everything in your life. Years ago, my wife and I uh, visited in uh, Soweto, which is uh, the large African township that's part of the greater uh, Johannesburg, South Africa, Metroplex. And at the time we visited, this was so strange, at the time we visited, some of the children in the elementary schools were skipping school in a strike. They were going on strike. Now, from our perspective, that was, you know, that was pretty unusual. Even more unusual, however, was the reason for the strike. They were objecting to being graded as individuals. Let me repeat that. They were objecting to being graded as individuals. In their culture, either the whole class passed or the whole class failed. To separate one child out of the group as doing better or worse than another was to attack a deeply held spiritual belief about how they saw the world and themselves. They saw themselves less as individuals and more as members of a group. Now, think about how that worldview will impact the lives of those children for as long as they live. This is a deeply held spiritual belief underlying their culture, probably below the level of conscious choice, which will determine much of the course of their lives. And while that may be a dramatic example, the principle applies to all of us. Our deeply held spiritual beliefs impact everything we do. Yet yet few, few people ever examine their spiritual beliefs. They're handed down to them. You know, and, and they believe what's handed down for them is good enough for them. They never examine whether those beliefs are right or true. They only hold on with emotional attachment to their beliefs mindlessly. Now, I'm, I'm writing this almost two decades after the terror, uh, the terror attacks of September 11th. It occurs to me that the actions of the terrorists are a powerful example of an unexamined spirituality dictating the course of their lives. People can so deeply believe things they lose all, they lose all touch with reality. And that which is good becomes bad. That which is bad becomes, in their mind, good. I wonder if those terrorists ever stopped to examine their spirituality, to question the core beliefs and ask if those are right and true. What if they're wrong? 
What if murder, murdering innocent men, women, and children is not a good thing? What if they've been deceived by a belief system that was fraudulent? Have you ever, ever examined your spiritual beliefs? Have you ever held them up in the light of what's reasonable? Have you considered what evidence there is for what you believe? Now, you know, I happen to be a Christian. I came to that position as an adult at a time when I was searching for some meaning in my life. I came to it as a result of a pretty thorough study of spiritual issues and religious paths. And as a result, I mean, I came at it mindfully. As a result, I have a deep-seated belief that God instilled certain gifts and talents in me, and that part of my appropriate response is to consciously exercise those gifts and talents in a way that strives for a more complete and influential use of them. If you have examined your beliefs to the point where you are convinced they stand up under the light of critical inquiry, then you can move on. Secure in knowing that you shored up and supported that most basic and deep part of yourself. That's number one. Number two, a continuously refined character. A continuously refined character. It wasn't so long ago that we had political elections in which one of the much bantered about phrases was, quote, character doesn't count. I mean, that was a political phrase. The idea behind that cliche was that if a person does a popular job in his political office, his personal character is a non-issue. What garbage. Not only does character count, but character is probably the single most important component of a successful life. Here's how Webster defines character. Quote, an individual's pattern of behavior or personality, their moral constitution. It's our pattern, the way we can be counted on to act and react. When faced with a possible confrontation, for example, some of us can be counted on to become aggressive, and others we'd expect to be reasonable. Some may avoid the confrontation. At this point in our lives, our pattern is pretty much set. And we can be counted on to act in that way. In other words, how we generally act in certain situations is a predictable pattern for most of us. It's part of our character. Now, our character determines more than anything else our destiny. For every action, there is a reaction. Every time we do something, we cause some response or reaction in other people. Or we influence the course of some events. So if we routinely respond to confrontation by becoming aggressive, that aggression prompts other people to resist us. So instead of having a pattern of cooperation, we create an expectation of resistance around us. And that leads people to making decisions about us that are not in our favor. Wonder why you didn't get that promotion you were expecting? It probably had more to do with your character than anything else. Can't figure out why customer went with the competitor when you knew you had a better solution? Maybe it was new. It was, maybe it was you, not, not your offer. See how this works? People react to your character, your pattern of behavior. And the way people react to you determines, to a large degree, how successful you're going to be in your life and in this job. Your character is the composite of the ingrained habits you have created over the years. Now, many of these habits have become so deeply embedded that you don't even think about them. You just do them. A habit is created when you repeat an action enough times that it becomes an unconscious pattern. The very first time, as a young child, for example, you, you chose to respond to a confrontational 
situation. That first time did not create a pattern, but by the time you repeated that action over and over and over again, you established a pattern which became part of your character. It's repeated actions that turn into habits. Those habits become your character. Your character determines your measure of success in your life. Now, now we can take our analysis of how this works to one more significant level. At some point, the stimulus to our actions, those same actions that eventually became crystallized into our character, began with our thoughts. Before we can do anything, we must think it. Remember learning to drive a car? You had to think about every step of the process from fastening your seatbelt to turning the ignition switch to, the switch to stopping at a red light and so on. You had to think. You had to, you had to think the thought before you could do the deed. Then, after thinking about it over and over again, it became an unconscious habit. You don't have to think about, you know, putting your foot on the brake when you approach a red light anymore. It's an unconscious habit. Then, after thinking about it over and over, you have created an unconscious habit, and the starting point was a thought, a conscious, willful decision to do some action. So... Our character is the ultimate result of our thoughts. So, so let's, let's review the cause-effect sequence here. The way we influence people and events determines our success in life. Okay, that pattern of behavior which determines how we influence people is called our character. Okay, our character is the assemblage of habits that we have created over the years. Okay, our habits are the result of our repeated actions, and those actions began with our thoughts. Here's an incredible principle, certainly one of the most powerful laws in the universe. It's this, quote, you can choose your thoughts, end quote. Let me repeat that. This may be one of the most powerful laws in the universe, you can choose your thoughts. That's right. You, you can choose to think the kind of thoughts you want. And when you choose your thoughts, you change your actions. When you change your actions, you modify your habits. When you modify your habits, you shape your character. When you shape your character, you control how you influence people and events. And when you influence people and events, you determine your success and your destiny in this life. I, that's so important. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to repeat that whole thing. You can choose to think the kind of thoughts you want. When you choose your thoughts, you change your actions. When you change your actions, you modify your habits. When you modify your habits, you shape your character. When you shape your character, you control how you influence people and events. When you influence people in events, you shape your success and determine your destiny. Wow. This is one of the most powerful truths in the world. Like all such truths, wise men have discovered and rediscovered it over and over again. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote, quote, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's exactly what I just said in 
much shorter words. More recently, Martin Seligman, a PhD in the book Learned Optimism, described how you can choose to think about adversity in your life and how that choice of thoughts impacts your level of optimism and pessimism and how that determines the degree of success you have in your life. Now that should come as no, no surprise to the, to the student of human behavior. Of course, your thoughts determine your actions. Your actions set your habits. Your habits become your character. Your character becomes your destiny. If, if you can choose your thoughts, you can, therefore, refine your character. Remember my story about being in the rock and hard place? trying to make a living with a company that had uh, decreased my territory. It's when I finally decided I had to, that I was responsible and I had to choose my thoughts. I began to choose my thoughts, to put positive thoughts into my head. Bill Gothard, who is a, who is a great Bible teacher, holds that there are 49 character traits that we choose over the course of our lives. 49. We choose, for example, to be generous or stingy, so that's a choice. We choose to be courageous or cowardly. That's another choice. We choose to be responsible or irresponsible. So he's got 49 of these choices about character traits. Sooner or later, the serious pursuit of being effective, the effective use of time, comes up against this truth. Over the long term, it's not the tactics you employ to be more efficient that determines your success. It's the character that you exhibit. Is more about who you are than any techniques you employ. The long-term challenge then for you is to become a person of continuously refined character. A person who has chosen his thoughts, shaped his character, to become the kind of person who positively influences events and people around you. That's number two. And here's our, the third. Here's the third of my three keels in the life of a salesman, and that's this: a set of higher ethics. A set of higher ethics. Now, there's some ethics that are particularly important for a performance-conscious salesman. You know, these include honesty, integrity, a serious work ethic, and a genuine concern for other people. Let's consider each of these. Number one, set of higher ethics. The first of those is honesty and integrity. Honesty can be defined as telling the truth. Dictionary defines integrity as intactness and firmness of character. It means that you are who you portray yourself to be. That your habits and commitments can be counted on. You're not changeable. You're not fickle. Now, these are of great value because they stimulate trust in your customers. And trust saves you time. Trust saves the customer time. I was speaking to a group of professional salespeople in Johannesburg, South Africa, on the subject of integrity in business. This was a number of years ago. And at dinner later in the evening, my host, my host, who had been sitting in the audience, shared with me that several of the people seated around her snickered at the idea. Evidently to them, sales was just a series of transactions. And the salesperson's job was to wring as much money out of every transaction as possible under whatever means were necessary. Their position was sad 
as well as unwise. Honesty is a powerful sales strategy. And it's probably more important today than ever before. You know, it works like this. If you have integrity, you save your customer time. In today's frenzy world, time is more precious than money for a lot of people. If your customers cannot believe you, then they must spend hours, days, or weeks of precious time confirming the things that you have said. If they can believe you, they don't need to check for the truth of every fact or statement. Here's, let me illustrate that. You know, a few, a few years ago, we attempted to purchase a condominium in a suburb of Cape, Cape Town, South Africa. <clears throat> the condo was in a resort location. It had been used as a rental unit. So it came fully furnished, you know, down to silverware and cooking utensils, the whole thing. We thought it was a good deal and, and a wise investment, and we offered the owner exactly his asking price. The owner came back through the real estate agent, and uh, on receiving our full price offer, had decided he was going to increase his price. Now, the owner may have been looking at his action as a slick negotiating ploy. We saw it as a lack of integrity. If we could not believe his stated price, then we could not believe any of the representations he had, he had made. We'd be reduced to counting the number of knives and forks instead of believing the inventory we didn't want to waste the time checking out every uh, nitpicky part of that deal. If we couldn't trust some of the representations by the owner, we couldn't trust any. If we couldn't trust any, it wasn't worth it to us to take the risk of dealing with them. We walked away. We saw the owner's lack of integrity as causing us to invest a great deal of time to assure ourselves that the risk was worth the money. And you know, the same is true of your customers. The more your customer trusts you, the less risk your customer feels in dealing with you, less time necessary to invest in understanding the product, the service, or the program you're offering. From the customer's perspective, it's easier and less risky to deal with someone you trust than with someone you don't. And you can translate that directly into dollars. I am always willing to pay more for something if I can buy it with less risk. In other words, if I, if I can buy it from a company or person I can trust, I'm willing to pay more. On the other hand, I'd rather not buy something at all if I have uh, suspicious feelings about the vendor. So that's, that's the first of our higher ethics, honesty and, and, and integrity. Here's the second, a serious work ethic. Now, one of, the, one of the reasons that I've been successful is that I've always worked hard. I learned that value from my parents. It's one of those ethics that people respect and will serve you well over, over time. Notice I didn't say work a lot. The average field salesperson in this country works about 49 hours a week. And while there are some temporary situations that may call for you to work more than that, I'm definitely not recommending that you do. Working hard doesn't mean that you work more hours than others. It does mean, however, that you focus on giving those hours your absolute best. You just fearlessly and relentlessly pursue your goals and strategies. You follow your company's directions, do what they ask you to do. You don't take 30-minute coffee breaks three times a day and long leisurely lunches. You work hard. You give it your best. Use every minute as it may be the only one you have. And as a result, good things will happen to you. Every so often, I run into a salesperson who has a story of some good thing that just fell on them. It seemed to come out of the blue, and I always congratulate the salesperson. Then I inquire into the specifics of the good fortune. 
and it almost always can be traced to some work the salesman did somewhere in the past. It just took a while to come to fruition. I found that the luckiest salespeople, coincidentally, happen to be the hardest workers. Here's another of my higher ethics, a genuine concern for other people. Now, there is something in human beings that hungers to be understood. There is something that wants others to care about us. That is part of human nature. These human appetites well up out of the deepest part of our psyche. All of us want people to care about us and to understand us. Your customers do too. Of course we're, fo we're focusing on business issues and the business environment. Still it is impossible to divorce these powerful hungers from our business lives. And that goes for your customers too. It's not just about price and product. It's about feeling understood, about feeling that someone really, truly cares for us. When your customers feel that you truly do care about them, then they trust you more, share more with you, and buy more from you. That says that you care about your customers is an incredibly powerful component in the customer and seller relationship. It is tough to fake. Although, you know, some people do. To be believable long-term, though, it has to be genuine. That means that you need to develop the value of really, truly caring about your customers. So, if you're going to be effective as a salesperson, you've got to be an effective time manager. If you're going to be an effective time manager, you've got to live deeper and be in balance. Blending those things together to hold you back and limit your behavior with those things that speed your growth and empower your efforts brings you into peak performance. Emphasize sales without keels and you're likely to spend hurricanes of time furiously going nowhere. Emphasize keels without sales and you're likely to be stuck in an unmovable rut where nothing changes, especially you. When you build solid keels into your life and juxtapose them with powerful sales, you live in that area of dynamic tension between these two opposing forces, which brings out the best in you. You become that which you are capable of becoming. You move out of the world of working hard into the area of working smart and becoming more effective. Living in balance, living deeper, is one of the greatest time management slash life management strategies. Okay, that's it. Bye-bye.